Happy New Year's Eve. Glad to be with y'all this week. Um, in case you've been confused as to which of the pastors is the oldest, uh, Mo's lituation in his party sweatshirt gave it away. He is, in fact, <laughs> the oldest pastor that uh, we have here on the church. You may not have known, but he is. Why don't you stand with me? As we read from God's word, Psalm 124, if you're reading in the Bibles that are found underneath your seat, it's on page 334, Psalm 124, it starts off and says this, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, then they would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept over us. Blessed be the Lord who has not let us be ripped apart by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the hunter's net. The net is torn, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Pray with me. Father, we come to you right now, uh, and before we set our sights on a new year, we look back at your faithfulness in this past one, Father. Thank you for being on our side. Thank you for being such a gracious God to us. I pray that today our hearts would truly overflow with praise for you that would produce faithful living in the only day that you've promised us, and that's the day that we have in front of us right now, Lord. In our eagerness, let us not look past uh, towards your faithfulness to us in the past. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Um, new beginnings, fresh starts, don't erase frustrating times. They replace frustrating times with new ones, but they don't erase them. Uh, this past week was Christmas, and as I got a chance to reflect um, on Christmases in the past, I spent some time and I thought about the time that me and my brothers got our first Nintendo. Um, so it was me, my brothers, cousins, and everybody was, was in the house. Um, and we were playing Super Mario Brothers, right? One, right? Where it's, you know, A and B on the controller. That's all you got. Um, and as we were playing, and, and it was brand new, we would die really, really quick. Um, and it was frustrating because once you died, you had to pass on the controller, and it took forever to come back to you. So we uh, got together and instituted a policy called the reset turn. Uh, what the reset turn was was there was this button on the front of the console uh, that was called the reset button. And what we allowed was one time right before Mario was going to plunge to his death, um, you could press the reset button, and it was a magical button that lets you start over from scratch. And there was an excitement as you got to press the reset button and start over, but 
that excitement quickly evaporated once we found out that new beginnings don't erase frustrating times. Even though we got a chance to start over, we found ourselves passing the controller off once again because it was just hard. New beginnings don't erase frustrating times. They replace frustrating times. And as we look forward to a new year and anticipate uh, us getting a chance to press the reset button, I really want us to know that. I want us to be cautioned as we get ready to proceed into this new year because uh, you and I inside of us have a dangerous combination of two things. And those two things are we have this dangerous combination of both forgetfulness and eagerness. Both of those things are just things in life, so they're not completely bad in and of themselves. But when they're paired together, uh, they are bad. Here's what takes place. You and I are eager for a fresh start. We're eager to look to the future and forget about the pain uh, of our past. We want to start over, and New Year's Eve is a great time because at midnight tonight, it kind of serves as like a perforated line that lets you throw away the past with ease and move on. As we look back and reflect on our past years, there's been so much pain, and you and I would love nothing better than to look past our past to a future, so much so that in our eagerness, what we do is we, um, we stay up late and we count down because we're so excited about this new day coming. Um, and eagerness is fine and it's a good thing, uh, but it becomes dangerous when it's paired with forgetfulness. And here's what I mean by, by that. I think in our eagerness, you and I tend to forget a few things. We forget at least three things. One thing that we forget is this. Uh, every new beginning actually sets the stage for a potential tragic ending. Every hope for gain brings with it uh, the threat of the loss of the things that we hope to gain. Every new love that we get comes with a set of knives that's prepared to stab us in the heart. New beginnings are great but as we reflect on the new things that come, you and I have to admit that they do not erase frustrating times. They'll bring with them a set of brand new ones. And here's what takes place if you and I uh, bottle our hope in the future or what may come. We'll be people that are always looking to the future for something to change and never finding it. You'll find yourself searching and never sat at satisfied. You'll find yourself filled with excitement on a day like today because in a few hours, there's a brand new year. But what we quickly find out is that excitement evaporates quicker than sweat on a summer sidewalk. February comes quick and we find out that even though the past frustrations have gone, there's new ones that have come. And it's easy for us to spend time being dreamers and dreamers and then get to a place when we experience enough disappointment. There's a cynicism that starts to build inside of us, and it's harder to look forward to, with any, any, any type of hope or joy because we settle into the past 
we settle into feeling like things are just going to stay the same. They're not really going to change. And not just that, but I think if we continue to look to the future for our hope to some other time, then what we'll actually do is we'll miss out on experiencing the goodness of God. And hear me what I say this. I'm not saying that we'll miss out on knowing God is good. We'll miss out on experiencing the goodness of God, and those are two completely different things. If you look at the Bible, everywhere that somebody experiences the goodness of God, they erupt in this uncoerced praise. They're overwhelmed with it. And the question is, when is the last time that you've been overwhelmed by the goodness of God? Maybe not to the point of tears, but to the point where you were just gripped with how good God was. Or is the constant pattern of your life that you're largely underwhelmed with him? Week in and week out, we come to church, we read our Bibles, we do the same thing. We may get a few good insights, but we don't feel overwhelmed by God. And if we're not overwhelmed by the goodness of God, it's not because God's goodness isn't overwhelming. It's because we're seeing something that's not the God of the Bible and we've grown content with it. Do you, want, do you want to be overwhelmed with the goodness of God? If you do, I have good news for you, and it lies in Psalm 124. So if you would turn with me to Psalm uh, 124, you should already be there. And the question that I want to ask and answer is this. Knowing what's in store, knowing that frustrations, the same ones that we've had this year, or new ones, uh, lie on the other side of midnight, how do you and I not just look there for our hope, but how do we move forward with courage and not let cynicism overtake us? We turn to Psalm 124. We already read it, but I want to set a little bit of context. Um, if there's any psalm that was written for December 31st, this is it. We're unsure of what time this was written in, but if you would allow me to speculate, I could surmise David is preparing for New Year's morning and he's hit with the fanfare of everybody that's starting to set goals and they look forward to their hope and as they do that he sits down and he pens a psalm like this. This is one, 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 one of the psalms of ascent. This was the soundtrack for the Jews as they went up to the temple or to Jerusalem. It was as they went up to a place where they were going to sacrifice for their sins to prepare for this fresh start. In anticipation of this fresh start, notice what David does. He doesn't look forwards. He looks backwards. He anticipates what's to come, yes, but he knows that the best way for him to prepare to move ahead is to turn around and to look behind him. Let's start here with verse 1. It says this. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say. Stop right there. That's not even a full thought. It's not a complete sentence. He starts this song talking about if God hadn't been on our side, and as he starts to talk about it, he looks up, and he's the only one singing. So he turns out and he says, hey, y'all, this is our song. This is a congregational song for all of us. 
why am I the only one singing? Everybody in here should join in because what's getting ready to follow is going to be true of all of us. One of the things that unites people is a sense of commonality, right? Um, we were at a birthday party and uh, uh, they sung the happy birthday song and everybody joined in. Um, and, and it was a birthday party for a black person. So once it was done, they sung Stevie Wonder's version, right? Um, so then you've got another group that joins in and you look around and you see like, yeah, like, like this is it, right? There's nothing better than being in a place where there's a commonality and you find out that somebody likes the same obscure band or the same songs that you do. Uh, I have countless friendships that have been built uh, on the recognition that uh, 90s R&B is in fact the greatest music genre to exist. Um, and to see people that say me too, right, you're, 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 you're just filled with a sense of these are my people. And what David says is, do you know what's better than that? Finding yourself in a place uh, where you just don't share the same taste in music, but you share the same God. He says, these are my people. This is our people. If God hadn't been on our side, before we go further, everybody sing. That's what we do here. Corporate worship is meant not to just be a time where you and I come to sing songs to God and hear from God. It's supposed to be a time where you and I come and sing to God and sing to one another. It's a time for us to be with God's people, which are our people. Do you come in week in and week out and look around you to the left and the right and say, these are my people. Y'all, this is our song. Now what this is not meant to do is it's not meant to discount any cultural allegiances that we have. Even in the Bible, as Paul, a Jew, talks about Jews, Paul says, yo, I feel this unique burden for the Jews. So what we're not saying is that if you're a Christian, it's wrong to have any type of burden for your kinsmen according to the flesh, for folks that are part of your same race or background that are struggling. We definitely want that. But so much more, what God does in the gospel in creating a church is he doesn't end the cultural allegiances that we have. He transcends it so that we all come into a place. And regardless of what the background is, we all can sing the same song and say, this is our song. These are my people. So regardless of how it's culturally performed, you and I are meant to join in. If you're in a foreign country and they start to sing happy birthday in Chinese, you may not know the words, but you know the tune and you join in and you're going to sing the best that you can. So if you find yourself in a church and your preferences are met, uh, you may not know the tune, but you know the content of the message. This is our song. David starts off and says, yo, this is our song. And all that I'm going to say is if that's really the, the truth, then let's act like a church. Look around you. Are these your people? Do you feel like they are? 
why or why not? As we get ready to head into the new year, I want us all to do this. Make a commitment to be here or with some other group of people on a regular basis where you're committing and you're saying these are my people. As you do it, you'll realize that God has a unique way of taking diverse people with the same story and uniting them to encourage our souls. This song is our song. This song is not a solo. For Cornerstone Church, this song is a 200-part harmony where everybody has the role that they have to play. Avoid the temptation of walking through life thinking that you're the only one that's going through the hard things that you go through and nobody will get what you're going through. Pulling away from community is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You expect that I'll gain nothing from sharing my life with this group of folks and then pulling away from them and not sharing your life. Do you know what you gain? Nothing. And it's easy to think, oh, well, I'm right. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. It's because you haven't tried what God said. So take a risk that it may be you sharing that's the catalyst for somebody else to share. It may be you sharing that's the encouragement for somebody else that's starting to go through the same thing. So try it out. Just start with one person that you trust this year here and make a commitment to I'm going to share my life with them and then trust them enough for them to choose somebody else to bring into that loop and watch what God does. David talks about facing the future and the first thing that he wants to make sure is that we're all on the same page. Let's all know that this is our song. And then he goes from verse 2 to 5, and he says this. If the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, then they would have swallowed us alive. In their burning anger against us, then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept us away. The raging waters would have swept over us. Here's what he gets at. I think that the point of this song, what David hopes to instill, not just in Israel back then, but in you and I today, is this. Uh, that the courage to move forward comes from the custom, the practice, the routine of looking backwards. The courage to move forward comes from the custom, the routine, the practice of looking behind us. That before we make plans to turn our life around, what he says is, Turn around and look at what God has done. The present that we're in is wet cement. The future is cement that's still in the bag and oh, water that's off to the side. All the ingredients are there, but it's not mixed. The past is hard concrete. The past is something that we can stand on. And what it does is it's going to take courage for you and I not just to look past our past, but to look into the pain of our past and to see where God is at work. And that's what he does. It flies in the face of our sensibilities because we hate to look back into our pain. We just want to move past it. We just want to make it to midnight, press the reset button and start over. We're scared to look backwards because the past is painful. We're scared to look backwards because if we look backwards, then you and I have to admit it, we have to come to grips with 
the horrendous things that have gone on in our life, God actually allowed those things to take place. And what that does is it produces an anger and a bitterness inside of us that we would rather ignore and just move past. And David says, don't look past your past. If you're ever going to have the courage to move forward, then you have to make it a habit to continually look back at the past. And as we look back, he wants to change our perspective. That what we have a tendency to do um, is to measure God's love with the wrong measurements. We measure God's love to us based on the absence of conflict. The smoother life goes, the better things are for me. The more God loves me, the harder life is, the less that he loves me. And the measurements are off. It would be like you going to a tailor to have a custom suit made and for him to tell you to step on a scale to take your weight and then make a suit based off weight. It would be a poorly made suit that doesn't fit because 230 pounds looks different on somebody that's 6'3", that's 6'5", that's 5'5". Suits aren't measured by weight, but by height and length. Listen, God's love for you, his favor towards you, is not measured by the absence of conflict, but by the outcome of it. It's not by if it's there or not, but by what happens after it gets there. Here's the bad news or sad news, depending on how you look at, at, at it. Um, godly people will never escape conflict, ever. The same conflict that was there with you this past year will find its way next year. Here in the text, I think that we see at least three things about conflict. One, um, conflict is inevitable, verse 2. But if the Lord had not been on our side, and that key word, when people attacked us, God was on their side, and not if folks attacked us, when they did. Conflict is as, as dependable as the sunrise. It is as um, unchangeable as the law that what goes up must come down. Conflict in this year is as predictable as going to a black wedding, seeing the groom and his mom getting ready to dance, and knowing that boys to men's mama <laughs> is going to play. I just want you to know that it's coming. And what he says here is that it's inevitable. It's going to find you. Look, even if you make a resolution this year to avoid conflict, to forgive everybody that does you wrong, to apologize and to do all that you can for relational um, uh, peace, we live in a world where other people won't make the same resolution and those that make it won't keep it. When it comes to conflict, nobody wins in a game of hide and seek. Everybody's found. As sure as the sunrise is going to touch every part of the earth, conflict is going to find you in every year that you have. 
not just is conflict inevitable, it's intense. Look here at verse 3. He says this. If the Lord hadn't been on our side when people attacked us, then, look, they would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. He uses that word because it's like, you know how when you're so hungry, uh, you barely even chew your food. Like, you swallow it just like bones and, and all, right? You're so eager to get it that it's like, I'm not even going to waste time chewing. I'm literally just going to throw it down the back of my throat. What he's saying is things are so intense in his life that it feels like he's getting swallowed alive. And the question is, is have you felt like that at any point in time this year? Have you felt it? And, and it comes at us from all sides, right? The loss of family members, job conflict, thinking that the job of your dreams is going to work out and being disappointed. It comes at us through relational strife, thinking that the marriage of your dreams was going to turn out differently than you hoped, and that new love has thrust a knife in, into your heart. It comes at us through things like infertility, not getting married and having to go home for holidays and get the constant questions of when. How many of y'all have felt like that? The sad news is that that's like that's not all. Not only is conflict in Inevitable and intense, but conflict um, is all inclusive. So, all the things that I talk through, um, it's not just or family dies, or infertility takes place, or your, your job doesn't work out. The, the key word is, is and, right? That it feels like it's frustrating because if it was one of these things, one of these things is enough to, to take me down, but this year feels like it's all of these things. Look here at verse uh, 3. Then they would have swallowed us alive, and they're burning ang ang anger against us. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept ov over us. The raging water would have swept ov over us. And it just kind of sets these two things, right? Burning, it talks about fire, and then water, which seems like it'll calm it, but if you've ever seen a house burnt down or have friends that have uh, their homes burned down, then what you find out is that what the fire doesn't destroy, the water that puts out the fire does. Has your past year felt like that? Have you felt like this thing just, just keeps going and it keeps getting worse and worse? Uh, my 2015 was like that. I just looked back and recounted the hardest year of my life. It was these seven things in a matter of months. Uh, failed adoption. Led into the death of my brother. Led into depression. Led into a job transition, starting a church uh, as, as we left one where I was getting a steady paycheck, not knowing what would take place. The 
the loss of friendship, his motives were picked apart, and depression wasn't quite un un understood. The marital struggles that came with that, and the increased inadequacy, out as a leader, all of those things just kind of crowd in. And the worst part is that it doesn't just come from outside, it comes from inside as well. Run as far away as you want to from the world, but the one person that you can't run away from is yourself. You know, one of the, uh, me and a few guys talked this past week, and we talked about one of the uh, odd things about being a Christian, somebody that acknowledges I'm weak and sinful and Christ saved me from my sin is that as I get to the end of each year, um, I'm more grateful for the work of Christ in my life because I'm more surprised at my own sin. Each year, I've seen in ways that I've fallen further and further. And I've come to the conclusion that as long as I live, um, I'm never going to reach the bottom of how far this thing goes. Run away from the world as, as much as you want to can't run away from yourself. So it comes from all sides and it comes from inside and the bad news is that even the godly don't escape conflict and you may be saying, John, this is exactly why I'm trying to look past the past. It is depressing. I don't want to be there. This is why I want this fresh start. This is why I want to push the reset button and start over. us to remember that you and I are not to judge God's love for us by the absence of conflict in our life. It's going to be there in all of those ways, but you and I are to judge God's love for us by the outcome of it. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the one phrase that's repeated in verse 3 through 5. Look, at if it had not been uh, for the Lord on our side, when people attacked us, then they would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept, would have, would have, would have. Do you know what he's doing? He's, he, he's looking back and constructing a fictional picture of what took, uh, of, of what took place. He said, uh, if God hadn't been on our side, uh, the bad things that took place would have been the worst thing. But he's rejoicing in God because he's saying, because God is on our side, even though bad things have happened, the worst things haven't. What this helps you and I to do is this. We don't measure God's love or his lack of love by good things that he's withheld from us. We measure God's love by bad things that he's withheld from us. Not by the blessings he's delivered to us, but by the bullets that you and I have dodged. Christmas is a good thing. And that we see a God that gave all he gave of himself. He gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. But if you and I aren't careful, Christmas and God's gift of everything could produce an entitlement inside of us. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, the good news is this. 
God gave us everything in his son. Here's the bad news and the sad news. Although God gave us everything, God owes us nothing. God is not a police department that's obligated to meet our needs because you and I are good taxpayers. We have nothing that that God needs. And we can begin to spend so much of our time focusing on the good that God has withheld from us and ignore the bad that he's spared us from. We, We have too high a view of ourselves. Here's how we do this. Uh, This is seen most clearly uh, in when you and I compare ourselves to other people and then complain to God or just to ourselves that we don't have the, the things that they have. I'm just as faithful as them. Why don't I have a spouse? Why don't I have a platform? Why don't I have this job? Why don't I have kids? Why me? God, why are you withholding these good things from me? Right? I, I don't want sin. I, I just want good things. And you and I can start to compare ourselves and start to complain. And what we essentially do is we covet. And in coveting, our forgetfulness creeps up. And we forget that God withholds nothing good from his kids. Nothing. Psalm 8884 says this. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. Listen, he does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Psalm 34, 9 and 10. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good things. Here's what that means. You do not determine what's good for you by the goals that you set. You determine what's good for you by what God actually gives you. If he withholds anything from you, it's not that he's withholding something good. He's protecting us, even if we don't know why. This is God's pattern. Psalm 124 tells us clearly that as a sign of God's love, God withholds bad things from us that we ignore because we're entitled and we think that he should, but he has no obligation to do so. This is why God command, as the very last commandment that God gives of the ten, he tells his people, don't covet. Don't look to anybody else's cows or wives, or things. Why? Because as we do that, and as we look at what we don't have, uh, Israel would spend their time focusing in on the fact that they don't have the cow that they want, and they would forget that God just brought them across a watery grave that killed an entire nation. Instead of being grateful for the salvation that they've been granted, they'll grumble because all they have to eat is bread and they don't have the meat that they have. Instead of praising God for the fact that he saved us from our past sins and put us in a place where we're surrounded by people that love God and love him, we'll spend our time 
complaining that we don't have the house that we want. Stop comparing. Stop complaining. Start reflecting. I remember for years, uh, you know, my my wife and I uh, uh, have had unexplained infertility for um, yeah, the past 10 years of our marriage. And I remember for years feeling like, God, I really want this good thing. Why don't I have a, a daughter or a son? And each year it was the same thing at the end of the year. I thought, all right, 2008, this is going to be the year. And then the end of 2008 comes and I'm disappointed. 2009 is going to be the year. 2010 is going to be the year. 11. All right, we're not going to have kids. We're going to adopt. 12, this is going to be the year. 13, 14, 15. And with each year that passed, my heart grew more and more callous and frustrated with the God who didn't give me the things that I want. And I ignored all the good that God had done for me. Stop comparing. Stop complaining. Start reflecting on a God that's kept us from so much. If it's hard for you to look backwards in your own life, I want us to take a look here briefly um, at the body in the Bible that is uh, viewed as Christ's bride, the church. And as you look at the history of the church, one thing that you see um, is that from the beginning, uh, the church is an idea that never should have worked out. The church is made up primarily of weak people that don't turn to Jesus because of their sensibilities. They turn to Jesus because they realize that as long as I steer my life, I'm going to wreck it. We turn to Jesus out of brokenness and tragedy, not because we have our minds right. Then he gives this weak group of folks an offensive message, a message that says this is the most important truth in the universe. And it splits people's eternity right down the middle. In the message that we have of the gospel that all of us are sinners, but there's a a way to God, but it's only one way and it has nothing to do with your sincerity, but everything to do with God's free grace chosen, what it does is it prevents this weak body of Christians from making worldly allies to help to preserve them. No political party jumps on board. No nation says we agree. So you have a weak people who contradict the system of the entire world. And you just look from the beginning, from the outside. Look at all the things that have gone on with the church. Jesus had a crew. The one person in the crew that was courageous was Jesus. And they killed him. And they left the future of Christianity in the hands of a bunch of cowards. And shortly after his murder, they persecuted cowards. And then if you go back and history, what you'll find out is that a historian 
by the name of Tacitus goes back and starts to talk about the church. And he says, listen, 64 A.D., Rome burned. Terrible fire burned Rome for six days. Some people thought the emperor did it. But when they asked him what he did is he blamed the Christians. And he said they did it. So now the most powerful nation in the world at that time is hell-bent on killing Christians and stomping them out. So you have this group of people that are already weak, that are hated, that are being attacked by the most powerful nation to exist. And after the stuff died down about the fact that they burned the city, Tacitus said that Christians earned a reputation of this that they are a group of people that hated the human race because they said, we're all fallen. We're all broken. There's nothing good inside of us that's going to get us to God. Back then, that was couched as hate speech. And what you find out is that from the outside, nobody could crush them. Why? Because of their strength, because of their might. No, it was because God was on their side. Look, it's not just that Christianity was attacked from the outside. It was attacked from the inside. It shouldn't have worked from the start. Christianity, the church, has had racial tension from the beginning. You go to Acts 6, and the first time that the church shuts it all down is over racial tension. It's not anything new. It should have imploded a long time ago because it's a group of folks that don't have the luxury of all climbing aboard one political wagon and talking reckless. It is a community of folks that can't settle for a superficial peace but instead has to do that hard work of getting deep. It's been hijacked from the inside, from the crusades, killing folks in the name of the Lord. Uh, Catholicism that charged people for their spiritual well-being. Slavery being justified from the Bible. Prosperity theologians that are preying on the weak. And do you know what you find out? God's church is still standing. The most powerful enemies can't stop it. And the most profound fools can't sabotage it. That's history. Cemented in the past. Factual. Something that you and I can stand and build our hope on. The preservation. So the question is, when was the last time that you praised God? I mean, really praise him for the fact that he's preserved you. When was the last time that you really sat back and recounted what might have been if God didn't step in? When was the last time that you sat down and actually did this, created a fictional uh, uh, account of what your life would look like if you hadn't met Jesus, who you would have been with, what life would have looked like for you, what your hope would have been in? It's not a pretty picture. Sit down and ask yourself two questions. What might my life have looked like if 
if I never met Jesus? And two, why doesn't it look like that now? And if the answer to question two is anything that you've done, I'm afraid you have too high a view of yourself. If the answer to question two is what we see here, if, if God hadn't been on my, my side, and I think you're on, on the track of a heart that overflows with gratitude. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to move on. Here's the better news. It's not just that the worst hasn't happened to us. It's this. For those of us that are in Christ, for those of us that have put our trust in the Lord, the good news is that the worst will never happen to us. Look here at verse verse 6. Blessed be the Lord. Look, who has not let us be ripped apart by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the hunter's net. The net is torn and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What he's saying is that we we are protected. And it's not just in the past that the worst has sent. It's that in the future, the worst won't take place because God won't let it happen. This psalm ends with saying, our help is in the name of the Lord. And then it goes on and expounds what name that is. It's the name of God being the creator. And what that's meant to do for you and I is so that we see if there's ever a problem that we have in creation, we are reminded that the very one who created creation is on our side. So there's nothing that can stop us. There's nothing that can rob us or take away our joy. Here's the bad news or the sad news. God often comes to save us at the last minute. Verse 6, right? Blessed be the Lord who has not let us be ripped apart by, by their teeth. Oh, we've been in the teeth. Now we just haven't been ripped apart. Verse 7, we have escaped like a bird from the hunter's net. The net is torn and we have escaped. So it's not just that God won't put us into bad places. It's that those bad things won't consume those of us that are Christians. Why? Because God gave the worst to somebody that deserved the best. Because Jesus found himself in the very teeth of death. And it didn't catch him off guard. He was born to be in those teeth to move us out of there. And those teeth ripped him apart. They, he died in our place. Jesus was caught in the net, caught in a trap, not a trap that he didn't see coming, a trap that he prepared the whole way, a trap that he ensured Judas would have breath in his lungs until he laid that trap. But here's the good news, that that trap of sin and death, that net, Jesus didn't just break free, but he left a hole in that net so anybody can break free. Jesus didn't just get out of the tomb, but he made sure that when they came and they saw the tomb, that the stone was rolled away so that you and I know that there is a way out. Listen, if, 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 if you're a Christian here and Jesus has really died for you, I don't care where you are or how you feel bound or what net you're in, you are not trapped. There's a way out, and he's provided it, and that's through Jesus, through what he's done in the past. 
If you're here and you feel trapped and you feel like, I don't know how to get out, I want you to know that Jesus has made a way for any and everyone that would turn to him. The worst won't take place. If we have the loss of a job, God provides in crazy ways. If we have the loss of a loved one, God gives us his presence in a unique way that doesn't replace their life, but that helps us make, make it through the pain. If we lose our own life, we haven't lost anything. That for us to take our last breath on this earth is like a scuba diver taking his last breath of an oxygen tank before he gets out of the water. It's not a tragedy. He was breathing on a machine that had him in an environment that he was never meant to live in. We are being sustained by God's breath in an environment that we were never meant to live in. This is what God has purchased for us through Jesus. This is what has gone on in the past. If you want the courage to move forward, you need to have the custom of continuing to look backward. And so as I close, here's your goal. Action item for today. Set your gaze on God's grace in this past year before you set goals for the new one. Set your gaze on the grace of God in this past year before you set goals for the new year. Here's four ways that you can do that. One, keep a journal so that you don't forget what God has done. Do the hard work of actually writing down and reflecting on what God has done. Uh, if you're not going to do it daily, mark out in your calendar at the end of each month this next year. Just take some time and write out ways that God has been faithful to you. Two, uh, in scriptural times, one thing that they did, they were very creative. And when God came through big time, what they did was they named their kids uh, based on what God has done. So what I'm not saying is to change your kids' names right now. But what I am saying is take a cue from their book. They did that so that every time they looked at one of their kids and they called out to them in frustration or just because they needed them to run in and get them a cup of water, they were reminded of, of the faithfulness of God. So you don't have to change the name of all of your kids, but find creative ways to keep that in front of you. Uh, three, make a goal of constantly finding a way to return to the faithfulness of God. Even if it's scheduling a dinner with people in the church, if you don't want to write things down, just start right now and say, hey, once a month, let's get together and just talk about how faithful God has been to us. Four, read history. As you read history, what you're reminded of is that diligence doesn't save people. Diligence is a great tool in the hands of God. All the great movements that God has done should have imploded from the start, but it's really God that made this thing inch along. And I think as we do that, one, we'll find that we'll have the courage to continue to press on because we'll see the trials are not new. And two, we'll, we'll have the clarity as to what goals God really wants us to set. That it's easy to spend our time trying to set our goals, avoiding uh, resistance, choosing the easiest path. But if you and I are aware that conflict is inevitable, it's intense. 
and it's all-inclusive, then we won't spend our time trying to hide from it, but we'll spend our time trying to trust God in it. Problems that come our way are just logs that we throw on the fire of the faithfulness of God. The more that come our way, the warmer that we get based on what God has done. Lastly, um, and I really want you all to hear this one. Um, don't be so, so short-sighted as to think that all of your problems are about you or for you. It's a narrow mindset to measure God's love for you uh, based on hard times. Your problems are meant for so much more than that. And here's what I mean by that. Aren't you grateful when you meet somebody that has gone through the things that you've gone through and they've come out on the other side? The day after Christmas, my wife was on the phone with a girl that we met in an apartment that we lived in eight years ago who is struggling with infertility and considering adoption. And her and Chandra talked, and she was encouraged. After the death of my brother, I read C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, and in a strange way, I was grateful that he went through the death of his wife and processed it in such a, a way that I was helped by it. I thank God that he didn't have a trouble-free life. Because if C.S. Lewis had a trouble-free life, uh, my troubles in dealing with the death of my brother would have been multiplied. If you can't thank God for the hard things that you're going through right now, I just want you to step back and trust one day somebody else will. God's good in all of that. New beginnings. They promise a hope of change, but they really don't bring it. They don't erase the frustrations in our life. They replace them. And so all in all, I just don't want you to let your eagerness for the future make you forgetful of what God has done in the past. Um, our past is full of pain. But if we ignore that pain, uh, we'll miss out on the providence of God and the way that he's preserved us in that pain. Don't look past your past. Look through your past to see the handiwork of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your grace towards us. Thank you for uh, the wisdom that lies in your word and that it's not our diligence that has helped us to, to discover it. You've made it. As plain as day, so Lord, would you give us grace to look to our past, have the courage to face it, to spend more time gazing at your work in the past than we do setting goals for the future. Um, and we pray that as we do that, that you would empower us to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray.